Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of TheMindRenewed.com coming to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today I am delighted and indeed honoured to welcome back to the programme Dr Paul Marrick, who joined us back in 2020 to talk about the work of the FLCCC Alliance, that's the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance, of, of which he is a founding member, chairman and chief scientific officer and to talk about the FLCCC's Math Plus protocol for COVID-19. Now, today, of course, we're going to be talking about a different matter, uh, which you will have gained already from the title of today's podcast, but more of that in just a moment. A little bit of information on Dr. Marek. He was, until his recent retirement, an endowed professor of medicine and chief of the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine in the Eastern Virginia Medical School in the US. Prior to co-founding the FLCCC, Dr. Marek was best known for his revolutionary work in developing a life-saving protocol for sepsis. He has uh, specific training in internal medicine, critical care medicine, neurocritical care, and nutritional science. He has authored over 500 peer-reviewed journal articles, 80 book chapters, and four critical care books. He's cited over 43,000 times in peer-reviewed publications, has delivered many hundreds of lectures at international conferences, received numerous teaching awards. Um, He's also the second most published critical care doctor in the world. And uh, in March 2022, Dr. Marek received a commendation by unanimous vote by the Virginia House of Delegates for, and I'm going to quote this, for his courageous treatment of critically ill COVID-19 patients and his philanthropic efforts to share his effective treatment protocols with physicians around the world, end quote. Dr. Marek, thank you very much indeed for agreeing to join us again on this program. Thank you, Julian. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's absolutely wonderful to have this opportunity to speak to you again, because listeners really, really appreciated the last time you came on and they learnt, as I did, a lot from what you had to say. And no doubt uh, that will be repeated today with a subject we're going to be discussing, which is the FLCCC's new Eat Well Guide to Intermittent Fasting, Time-Restricted Eating and Healthy Habits. Now, um, there is a lot of talk these days about intermittent fasting and time-restricted eating, and it can seem uh, like it's a a bit of a fad. But you take this extremely seriously, and uh, indeed, I understand that it's had a dramatic impact upon your own health, as I heard. when I About a year ago, you did an interview with Dr. Bean, um, who's also been on this program, but listeners will know him. You were talking about this, and you were saying how dramatic the effect was, and that inspired me to contact you. So perhaps we should start there. Could you tell us, basically, what impact this has had on your health? Yeah, so um, I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes probably just over 20 years ago. I was initially on insulin and then I was transitioned to oral medications and the diabetes got worse. So then we added a second medication and uh, I had assumed like most people with diabetes and what we taught is that type 2 diabetes is not curable. It's a progressive disease and that one's going to develop vascular and eye and cardiac complications. And that's the inevitable course. And my father was a diabetic. He developed complications and um, he died with diabetes. So that's what I was anticipating. But um, like most things in medicine, that's a lie. We've been deceived. I mean, I discovered that it's a treatable disease. It's It's a disease caused by lifestyle and it's completely reversible. 
So the best marker of diabetes is something called hemoglobin A1C, which basically um, what happens is if your blood glucose is high, the glucose molecule attaches to hemoglobin. And the degree of attachment to hemoglobin gives you an index of how high the blood glucose is. So um, it's used as, it's probably the best diagnostic tool for diabetes because it gives you the average blood glucose over the last three months. So um, prior to this adventure, my hemoglobin A1C was 7.2%. And that's pretty high. When it gets to 10%, that's pretty severe and life-threatening. A normal is below about 58 So I was a diabetic. And so through really circumstances and a change in my understanding of medicine and circumstances, I stumbled upon this concept of time-related eating or intermittent fasting and really eating food, not processed food. And I thought I would give it a try. Mm. And um, basically, I'm no longer diabetic. I can confidently say I've been cured of diabetes. My current hemoglobin A1C is about 5.6. So by definition, I'm not a diabetic. I continuously monitor my blood glucose using a continuous glucose monitor, and it's completely flat. When I eat appropriately, which I do 95% of the time, I have a flat curve. If I do eat, it goes up maybe to 140, but then comes down promptly. What does cause my glucose to go up is stress. And I think it emphasizes the profound effect that stress has on one's uh, hormonal milieu. Mm. Um, so at the beginning of this, you know, after three or four months when I did cheat and had a normal, you know, Western diet, my glucose would go up to about 180 and it would stick there for three or four hours, which is not normal. So yesterday, actually, because it's a memorial weekend here in the U.S., I decided to cheat. <laughs> I had a typical Western bad diet. <laughs> what did you have? What did you have? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had a grilled cheese sandwich with bacon cheese fries. It's like the worst thing possibly imaginable. <laughs> right. Uh, and in fact, I didn't enjoy it that much as much as I used to because mm. your taste buds change. Processed food doesn't taste as good as it used to. Yes. Um, so it was okay. It was nothing like like extraordinary, but it did. Obviously, my glucose went up to 180. But what happened is it came down really quickly. Mm -hmm. It came down within an hour, which is completely normal. Right. So it indicates that both my insulin resistance has covered, but more importantly, my beta cells of my pancreas are now acting appropriately, releasing uh, what's called first-pass release, re releasing appropriate amounts of insulin so that it controls the glucose. Mm. It's truly astonishing. And uh, the fact that this has happened, I think attests to the fact that we've been lied to. This is a treatable disease. This is a disease of lifestyle, and it's absolutely reversible. And this becomes important because it's projected by the year 2030, that 50% of people on this planet will be overweight. Wow. Um, the incidence of metabolic syndrome or insulin resistance will probably be close to 30 to 35%. Incidence of diabetes, 20%. So the health 
and economic and financial consequences of this global catastrophe are enormous. Mm. And the bottom line is it's reversible. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely incredible. Now, you say that you were diabetic for over 20 years. Is that right? Yeah, so probably around yeah. 20 years um, that I've been diabetic. Uh, mm. I, I, I could work it out exactly, but <laughs> yeah. I would say it's probably over 20 years, maybe 22 years. So I thought that I was a diabetic mm. forever. And you didn't pick up from your own reading during that time or from colleagues that this was at all reversible? It was, as far as you were concerned, something you had to live with? Yeah, I mean, I had a primary care doctor, my internist, who is a smart person, and he never counseled me on anything that I should have done appropriately. Um, And he's a really smart doctor. So the conventional medical wisdom is the way you treat this is with medication, Mm -hmm. which is typical of the influence of big pharma, Uh is to prescribe pharmaceutical drugs which don't cure disease, but they control symptoms. And so that way you hooked on pharma medications forever. Yes. When you were speaking to Dr. Bean, you listed some of those and there were a couple of blood pressure medications as well. Has your blood pressure come down too? Yes. So I used to have very labile blood pressure and I used to take two meds. Now I take a low dose of one medication. So it's much better controlled. Um, I do take a low dose it is a strong hereditary component uh-huh. on my mother's side. The diabetes was on my father's side. And, you know, you're born with the genes, the card of decks you have. So mm. it was stacked somewhat against me. So I do have, but it's much better controlled now just on one low-dose medication. Mm. And there are other medications you are off, I believe. At least at the time we were speaking to Dr. Bean, you were off statins and you were off an SSRI. Yes. So I was on a PPI because I had reflux and I was told you take a PPI. PPIs are really bad things as a proton pump inhibitors. So um, I'm off the PPI and I don't get reflux. (laughs) Astonishing. I was on an SSRI and um, those are really bad medications. Um, They're really bad. And we've been deceived about the same way as diabetes, the you know, we could talk about non-traditional treatment of depression, of which there's phenomenal data on interventions which are not SSRI-based. SSRIs are a failure, and more significantly, they cause aberrant behavior. They have serious side effects. And, in fact, the package insert of sertraline, which is Zoloft in the U.S., actually includes homicide as a side effect of the medication. <laughs> right. Okay. Homicide. Okay. So, You're not suicide, but it's homicide. All right. So, it, it, no, yeah. suicide as well. So it does okay. increase the risk of suicide, but actually causes homicide. And what I discovered, I didn't know this, people may not know this, that many of the school mass shooters in the U.S., almost all of them were taking an SSRI. Wow. And these are overprescribed as well, presumably, along with a lot of pharmaceutical products. Yeah, so they don't treat the disease they're trying to control. Yeah. And they are actually very effective non-traditional treatments for depression that are very successful, that have been well studied and published, but people don't know about. Mm. Um, and just I can mention it. One is high-dose vitamin D. Wow. The second is methylfolate. Many people with depression have abnormalities in folate metabolism. They cannot activate folate. So taking folate doesn't help. 
you have to take the activated form of methylfolate. And the data is, is strikingly um, how effective it is because a large percentage of people with depression have abnormalities in folic acid metabolism. But what you really need to do is take B12 and activated folate. Um, and then high-dose vitamin D. So I take 10,000 units a day, mm-hmm. which I think is a very safe dose. Yes. You know, the recommended daily allowance is 600 units, believe it or not, yeah. which is a complete sham. Mm-hmm. And so just to give you an idea, I bought a bottle of 360 tablets of vitamin D, 10,000 units per tablet, and it cost me $12. So that's a year's mm-hmm. supply for twelve dollars, so we this is this is a high quality product. So this just tells you why big pharma don't like these interventions because they cheap, yeah. they safe, and they cure diseases. And that goes completely against the pharma narrative. And you know, mm-hmm. one of the Pfizer VPs actually said, "We're not interested in curing disease. We're interested in selling drugs." And so well, that's what they do. Well, at least that was honest, I suppose. I mean, I was amazed during COVID, I suppose it was towards the end of COVID, that international units of vitamin D were, were increased by the government here or the, the recommended amount for people in care homes. I think it was something like, was it 400 or something? And it was up to 800 or something like that. And I thought, well, this, yeah, yeah, increased, what's the difference? You know? Yeah, they increased it to 800. So uh, I've been yeah. actually reading a lot on high-dose vitamin D. Yeah. So 10,000 units actually is a reasonably low dose compared for the high-dose group. It's exceedingly safe and um particularly people in your neck of the wood you're somewhere near the north pole so (laughs) you you know because of your latitude you don't get enough uvb and you don't make vitamin d so i would say that almost everyone on your little island should be taking vitamin d without exception yeah not this week though we're doing very well for sunshine this week but one one week out of 52 isn't that good is it um what about taking vitamin k2 with that yes a lot of people do suggest that's a good idea absolutely so actually i bought the two together vitamin k2 100 micrograms plus 10,000 of vitamin D and absolutely it's a it's a wonderful combination mm. the two together uh, vitamin k2 itself has enormous health benefits it reduces coronary calcification reduces heart disease reduces cancer wow. so it's mm. exceedingly <laughs> safe the only precaution there's only one precaution with k2 is if you're taking the blood thinner coumadin it may interfere with coumadin so you have to be cautious sure. otherwise vitamin d and k2 are exceedingly safe and make a make a really good couple Yes. So as always, do check with your doctor with with everything we're saying here today. Of course, this is for information purposes. Is it right that um, with high dose vitamin D, there is a possibility of more calcium in the blood, which could be then taken out again by the K2? Is it something along those lines? Exactly. So, you know, what you say is true is that you, you need to, you know, before you start, I mean, well, if you start high dose, you need to go to your physician. Mm. They need to check a vitamin D level. They need to check a calcium level. And most importantly, they need to check a parathormone level, PTH, uh, because this is part of the Coumbra protocol where you actually titrate the vitamin D level, the vitamin D dose to your parathormone level. Because many people are vitamin D resistant. And so the only way you can actually pick that up if vitamin D is not working is your parathormone level. So if your parathormone level is high, 
despite the vitamin D, you need to increase the dose. It's a pretty neat trick. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, these are really inexpensive tests and aiming for optimal health should be all, all of our goal. And there's no question that vitamin D has enormous benefits in terms of health promotion, the treatment of autoimmune disease, limiting Alzheimer's disease, limiting um, dementia. Uh, it has proven benefits in reducing the risk of cancer. And what I actually learned this week, astonishingly, that vitamin D deficiency during pregnancy increases the risk of the child becoming autistic. Wow. So the, the health benefits of vitamin D are, are overwhelming, but they don't want you to know about it because it can only make you healthy and it's exceedingly cheap. And then they can't sell so many drugs. Yeah. Okay. Let me just uh, say this uh, disclaimer here, which actually comes from the, the document we're discussing, but I think it's a good one. This conversation is meant solely for educational purposes. Do not disregard professional medical advice because of something you heard in this interview. This is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment regarding any patient. Treatment for an individual patient is determined by many factors and thus should rely on the judgment of your physician or qualified healthcare provider. Always seek their advice with any questions you may have regarding your medical condition or health i think it's very important to stress that yeah um, i think that's an important qualifier particularly with vitamin d because there are certain conditions that you may want to use a slightly lower dose depending on your kidney function maybe your liver function these are just general recommendations it's always best to consult with a clinician who actually understands what's going on is tuned in and um have a conversation. And I mm. think the bottom line is a conversation that you should be able to have a conversation with your physician. If your physician has no time to have a conversation with you, then you've got to find a new physician. Because I think that's such a fundamental concept is, yeah. you know, having trust in your clinician, in your physician, your primary care doctor, and being able to have a conversation. Mm. And if they just don't have time, well, You've got to find another one. Yes, uh, there's too often this idea, isn't it? The patient is like a machine and the physician is like the mechanic and just makes the little adjustments and it's all finished. And You don't have a conversation. So, uh, yes, I totally agree with that. In my own experience, I've suffered from a few of those those appointments myself. Um, so um, you are off a number of these medications. And alternatively, you, you take vitamin D, but you take some other things as well, don't you, that help you personally? Omega-3, I believe, is another one. Yeah, so I take berberine. So berberine is an ancient Chinese herb. It's found in a number of different plants, in the stems and the, and the root. It's been used in China for over 3,000 years. And the scientific literature, peer-reviewed literature, shows it's probably the most effective drug for the treatment of type 2 diabetes. Wow. Let me say that again. It's probably the most effective drug for the treatment of type 2 diabetes. And the reason that you don't know about it, mm. or people don't know about it, is that you can't patent it. So if you can't patent it, you can't make money from it, and no pharmaceutical company is interested. But it is without question the single most effective drug. In fact, it's more effective than metformin. So metformin has very similar properties to berberine and is really a good drug to take. Berberine is actually more effective in glucose control than uh, metformin. There are a few drug interactions one has to be careful of. You know, as we said before, right. you know, you always yes. need to consult with your clinician. And so there are a number of drug-drug interactions with berberine 
One which is particularly important is if you're on transplant medication, you can't, you shouldn't take it. Hmm. So, but apart from that, it's exceedingly safe. The only problem with berberine, as I said, is it, it can cure you of many disorders, but there are some drug-drug interactions. Fair enough. Um, and again, it's over the counter, it's safe, um, and it's cheap. Yes, and as you say, they don't want you to know about this. So presumably there are no randomized controlled trials of this substance. Nobody putting up money for it, I presume. Well, actually, believe it or not, there are not large randomized studies. This idea that everything has to be a large randomized study is such nonsense. But in fact, there was a randomized study. Mm. It's an astonishing study, actually, Mm. published in peer-reviewed literature that compared berberine alone for four months versus the best of medical treatment for atheroma, which included a high dose of a statin and two antiplatelet drugs. So these were in patients who had carotid artery atherosclerosis, randomized blinded study. And what they found is the group that got berberine, the carotid atheroma actually got less. It regressed. They did three-dimensional imaging of the atheroma. It actually regressed on the berberine where it actually stayed the same or got a little bigger in the statin group. So there's overwhelming scientific data that it's effective. And it's much more effective than the best available medical therapy can offer for atherosclerotic vascular disease. So this is really, really important considering the number of people with, you know, coronary disease, carotid disease, people who have at risk of stroke or heart attacks. This is truly astonishing. Mm, yes, and doctors need to know about this. Um, afterwards, I shall email you, and I'd, I'd be grateful if you give me the link to that, and I'll put that in the show notes. You say that um, the US, well, this would be Western nations, I presume, in, in general, are highly, highly over-medicated. You talk about people being on 12 or more medications as they sort of go from one dot to the, to the next, and it's not checked up on what they were on previously, and it can go as high as 30, 30 medications, something like that? Yeah. So there's, there's an interesting graph which looks at the consumption of pharmaceutical drugs. So the US makes up about 4% of the world population. Yet we consume 55%, 55% of prescription drugs and 80% of prescription opiates. So that tells you what the incentive is of big pharma. Mm. They're not interested in developing countries where they make less money. Their target is the American market where their markups are absolutely ginormous and where they profiteer and exploit patients. So it's interesting because obviously Europe is probably second. But if you look at China, I mean, the population of China is probably a billion. I don't know. And their consumption of world consumption of prescription drugs is like two or three percent. So what's going on here? So either they intrinsically healthier and don't have disease or they're not being over prescribed like mm. the West, Western world. Mm. That certainly seems more likely. One wouldn't expect genetic changes to have uh, kicked in to that extent during the amount of time involved to make these geographical differences. No. So this has to do with the more drugs you take, the more side effects you have, the more the more drugs you need to control the side effects. And once you yes. take three or four medications, the drug interactions and side effects become so unpredictable. Uh, there was actually a study in the UK which I think 20% of people admitted to hospital in the UK 
were a consequence of an adverse drug reaction or interaction. Wow. So, yeah. so you can see not only do they not help you in the sh- long term, in the short term, that they, 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 <laughs> they have serious consequences. Yes. Yeah, so the keys to this then are diet and our lifestyle. And of course, we're going to be talking about fasting and um, intermittent eating as well. Um, but uh, let's just talk about food a bit. I mean, you talk about unreal food. So we talk about real food and not real food. And you've got a picture here. I, I, I always chuckle when I look at this because it's it's so obvious, but it's also informative at the same time. It makes the point. So you've got, um, well, people will see it if they go and get the documents. So there's a bowl here. It looks like a breakfast with blueberries and yogurt or something. Um, and it says, this is food. And then underneath, underneath, it's a bowl of, well, it looks like Cheerios of all multicolours. And it says, this is not food. <laughs> um, I know that's very, very basic, but uh, go on. Tell us what, what are the unreal foods in your view? Yeah. So I've become aware of a condition which most people would not recognise, but which is very pervasive. It's called processed food addiction. Mm. And it's actually very pervasive. It's very common. And it's not dissimilar to substance abuse, Hmm. substance use disorder and alcohol abuse and alcohol addiction that most Western people don't realize that they are actually addicted to processed food. And animal studies show that the addictive properties of processed food are equal to, if not more or greater than that of cocaine and other illicit substances in terms of the changes in neuronal function, in terms of uh, neurotransmitter release, in terms of behavior. Processed food actually is profoundly addictive. And so I used to be a a food addict or a starch addict, and that's why I had diabetes. Right. And so that's why, you you know, you have to break that cycle. And the idea that Mm. people can't do it is nonsense. The the human body has did not evolve – to eat, be eating all the time, to be eating processed, synthetic, artificial food. Mm. That's not the way humans were designed. And we know many religions have periods of fasting. I mean, in the Ramadan, they fast for 12 hours for a month. Mm. And it's part of the culture and everyone does it. And Mm. it's the norm. Mm. So this idea that people can't do it, they can't do it because they're addicted. They are Mm. starch and food addicts. It's interesting you say starch because uh, you may know the name Dr. Robert Sywers. I think he's known as the carb addiction doctor. And he speaks in, in these terms about carbohydrates, that they are actually addictive, which is a very, if that's true, it's a very helpful way of thinking about it because then you realize why it is you're driven time and again to go back to the chips and the crisps, etc. It's not just because you fancy them, it's because you are chemically driven to do so. Yeah. So I think there's such a, I'm reading a book now called Processed Food Addiction. And it's really a stunning book because the treatment of food addiction is no different from the treatment of substance abuse or and substance use disorder and alcohol abuse or smoking. Cool. They're the same. Wow. And so if people recognize that they have become addicted to processed food mm. and there are multiple reasons for this, you know, marketing and mm. cheap availability and the fact that it's all over in the stores and that kids are exposed to these toxins. I mean, it's like giving your child, you know, three or four year olds, giving them cocaine because, you know, people start this course of addiction at a young age. So if you if you consider this to be an addiction 
rather than a physical need to eat, mm. then it becomes easier to treat because you treat it the way you would an addiction. And this is an addiction. Mm. And so the, the most effective way of treating an addiction is avoidance. You know, the way you treat alcohol is aversion and don't take alcohol. And so the same thing with processed food. The treatment is to avoid taking in these addictive substances. Mm. And at the beginning, you there are cravings and withdrawal because it's much like an addiction. But like all forms of addiction, it can be treated. And once you treat it, you go down a different path and you don't go back again. How do you define a processed food? Because this is often a bit of a controversy. I mean, do you just literally look at a box and see, well, it's got lots of ingredients, therefore it's highly processed. But then you might have something from, you know, a, a local store that's got several ingredients in that's made in the store. I mean, how, how do you define this? Yeah. So that's actually a good question. And there's some, there is some overlap. But, mm. uh, you know, at the one extreme, there are, you know, things like breakfast cereals which we feed to our kids, are completely processed. Mm. They're high in sugar, high in corn syrup, high in fructose, and have enormous number of additives, colorants, mm. chemicals. Yeah. And so if there's a list of chemicals with long names that you don't understand, that's processed food. Yeah. So, I mean, to some degree, I mean, you know, some of the chicken uh, and meat may be slightly processed, you know, but it's not, it doesn't have all these chemical additives and it looks like food. So <laughs> yes. the bottom line is if it looks like food, yeah. it's likely food. If it comes in a box or a container and has a label on it, it's almost certainly not food. Yeah. And the more ingredients and the more chemicals and the stranger the names of the chemicals, mm. the more likely it to be processed food. And so one should get back to basics, you know. Mm, uh, it's mm. interesting in, in supermarkets, most of the unprocessed food is found on the outside of the supermarket. And as you go towards the center of the store, it becomes more and more processed. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why that happens. It's, just, it's a well-known phenomenon. So you really – and the trick is that if you have – no processed foods in the house. You can't snack on processed foods and you yes. it's breaking your addiction. It's like an alcoholic having bottles and bottles of whiskey in the house. Yeah. That's not a good thing. So you need to you need to get rid of all the alcohol mm. the same way as you right. get rid of all the processed food. And so if you think of food addiction as an addiction, it becomes easier to understand and deal with. Mm. And from the flip side, is most of these diet companies and diet programs don't treat the underlying cause. And that's why 95 to 100% of diets fail. They fail. They have this simple mantra or narrative which is completely false. You know, calories in, calories out. Right. And mm. that's the wrong approach. Um, yes. It has much more to do with calories, and this is a behavioral, societal disorder yes uh, that's a very reductionist kind of thing which uh, covers over the facts i mean yes i mean if you're saying it's zero tolerance then to have 
a pizza or something in the fridge, though, because you might just have a little bit now and again is actually giving into this addictive situation. Better just to cut it out altogether. In fact, what you say there about real food and you can tell that some things are not real. I found this actually quite helpful going into the supermarket. And it seems so simplistic, really, but it's really, really helpful because I look at certain things and think, well, that's clearly real food. And I've got new eyes for, you know, I mentioned the pizza. You know, you look at the pizza and it's got a sort of cellophane top to it. You think, well, okay, that looks a bit sort of processed. You take it home and I take the cellophane off. And of course, because it's sort of pressed into the food, it still looks like it's got a plastic sheen to it when I've taken that off. And I'm thinking, this isn't real food. You know, I can see it that way now. So that's quite a helpful illustration, actually. Yeah. And I think out of, you know, pizza is probably one of the most widely consumed food groups. It's not really a food, actually in the world and it's probably the one of the worst processed foods it has nothing there's nothing good about a pizza it's completely processed food mm. and so um i mean it looks it <laughs> pizzas don't grow on trees or no. they don't grow in the soil this is a if it doesn't look like like a food group it's not a food so pizza is probably one of the worst Oh, one that uh, comes up for a lot of criticism, uh, you've already mentioned, it, is this high fructose corn syrup. Is that particularly bad, do you think? Yeah, so fructose is actually not good. Starch is not good because it re- releases glucose. But fructose is even worse because fructose is metabolized in the liver and converted to fat. And so that's one of the reasons of insulin resistance is that you get fatty liver from high concentration of fructose. So fructose actually is quite toxic. And the importance of this is that many fruits or, or all fruits actually are high in fructose. Yes. So, you know, vegetables are fine. You know, it, it, vegetables mm. are fine. But you have to be careful about overeating too much fruit, particularly kinds of fruits such as bananas and apples and guavas and uh, papaya. Right are really high, have a very high glycemic index. The berries, if you're going to eat fruit, the berries are the the healthiest, but you still want to limit the intake Mm. because they have a high amount of fructose. And the worst thing are fruit juices. Oh, yes. So fruit juices is just pure glucose and fructose with no fiber, and it results, has no nutritional benefit. Would you not say that we we do need some fruit, though, in our diet? Um, I would say maybe. I don't eat. I used to eat fruit, but because I discovered, you know, I monitor my blood glucose. Mm. And even with my improved glycemic control, if I if I take two or three or a handful of berries, it's okay. But if I eat more than that, my glucose spikes. And there, there is actually no nutritional need for fruit. I think vegetables wow. are fine. Mm. Avocados are, are really good. Leafy vegetables uh, cruciferous vegetables. Um, That's interesting. Some say that you can combine other foods with fruit and then maybe mitigate some of those effects. Is that right? Oh, so that's a really important thing you say. There is a woman in Sweden, I think her name, she's the glucose goddess. She's written a book on glucose profiles and glucose levels. And what's really important is the order in which you eat the food makes an enormous difference Uh in your blood glucose profile. So what you want to do is you want to eat starchy foods or foods high in glucose and fructose towards the end of the meal. Mm. So you can eat the same food, but the order is important. And she's shown this profoundly. So you want to start off a meal with greens and vegetables. 
um, like a salad, because what it does is slows absorption and forms this kind of milieu in the smaller bowel, which slows the absorption of glucose. So the worst thing to start off a meal is with bread. And so the restaurants do this by design because it's a highly starchy food, results in a high blood glucose, which results in high insulin, which then activates your appetite. So if you actually eat bread, it increases your consumption of food. So if you eat bread or dessert, you should leave it for the end of the meal. It's okay to have a small dessert, but keep it at the end of the meal. You first want to eat your greens mm. and your fiber, then your protein, have the starch at the end. And the order of the food makes an enormous difference on your blood glucose profile. That would be therefore very important for consuming fruit, wouldn't it? So actually a traditional model here for a meal would be a green salad, followed by quite a lean main, then followed by a dessert that had some fruit in it. Yeah. Um, but in that order, that would be best. Yeah, that would that would be fine actually. Mm. Um, I would limit the amount of fruit, but that that that's the best combination, and there's obviously good scientific data to support that. So yes, that would be a good meal. Mm. Now uh, you've been saying a number of times there are powers that do not wish us to know about what's good to eat, etc. Um, you criticised in the interview with Dr. Bean the USDA food pyramid. And that's been updated to my plate, I believe. I think it was 2005, which seems to have improved things a little bit along your lines. But there's still a lot of carbs in there. They, they talk about whole grains as particularly important and low-fat dairy. Do you think that's improved the my plate advice? Yeah, so they completely, the USDA is completely controlled and captured by the food and drug industry, much like Big Pharma is and the... Right other agencies it's completely um, outrageous and so their food pyramid now the plate is completely upside down it's completely the opposite of what it should be is so they're still pushing this low fat mm. uh, if it's low fat it must be high in carbs or uh, and processed carbohydrates and in fact fats are fine the data show even saturated fats you know a good paper in lancet showed that the more saturated fat you have, the lower your risk of cardiac disease. So this complete obsession with low fat is complete nonsense. So if it says low fat, it's high carb, you want to avoid it. You actually want a high fat product, which is the converse of what you see advertised and completely opposite in what the USDA suggests. They say low fat and they pushing refined carbohydrates and breads and starches completely bogus and it's an outrage and it seems that the nhs here with their eat well guide seems to be following something a bit like my plate as well um all right so what would you say are the the worst foods to eat <laughs> what do you reckon yeah so we have a list if you actually go to our website you can download our intermittent yeah. fasting guide and our diabetes guide at www.flccc.net flccc.net and we have a list there of the worst foods and the best foods so the worst foods are i'm sorry to say pizza donuts <laughs> bagels oh. pasta tortillas you know all of these processed carbohydrate wheat flour products they're probably at the top what about potato so, here in the uk we eat a lot of potatoes yeah so potatoes are actually you know obviously potatoes are cousin of the french fry 
And so they're really high carbohydrates. So although it is a vegetable, it's one of the few vegetables that are least healthy. Right. So uh, I would avoid potatoes. And you would avoid bananas, you mentioned, but aren't they supposed to be good for potassium? Yeah, they are high in potassium, but I think you can get enough potassium in your general meal. So I would avoid bananas unless you're a monkey or an ape. Um, I think you, you can get away with not eating a banana. Okay. Um, now, you've mentioned about saturated fats. I thought it might be an idea if you could clarify some of these terms, because we hear a lot about saturated fats and monounsaturates and polyunsaturates and trans um, unsaturated fatty acids, etc. They're talked about a lot, but not often explained what the differences are. Yeah. Um, could you tell us, in your view, which are the healthy ones and which are not? Yeah. So basically, when they talk about saturated or unsaturated, so a fat basically is a long carbon chain, usually 16 to 18 carbon atoms in, a, in in this long chain. If it has no double bonds, it's called saturated. If it has double bonds, it's called unsaturated. And it may be monounsaturated, so it has one double bond, such as olive oil and avocado oil mm. has one double bond, or it can be polyunsaturated, where it has multiple double bonds. And then you have natural polyunsaturated, and then you have these vegetable oil manufactured things, processed fats, they are omega-6s. So the other classification of polyunsaturated is the position of the first double bond. If it's at the first double bond at carbon number six, it's called omega-6. If it's at carbon number three, it's called omega-3s. And for reasons that are really curious, Omega-3s are healthy, omega-6s are unhealthy. So most of the processed vegetable oils that we consume, and we're talking about billions of tons of processed vegetable oils. Um, and so the most common is soy oil, but then there's canona oil and flaxseed oil and a whole bunch of different oils. These are processed omega-6 vegetable oils. And in fact, they've been shown that they cause oxidative injury. They increase your risk of cardiac disease and increase your risk of cancer. So they, they are really should be avoided. Saturated fats are fats that are found in animal products. So, you know, in, in meat and chicken and in eggs. And so we were told not to eat them, but that's again bogus. So I, I, you know, I used to avoid eggs because I was told they're unhealthy. There's nothing wrong with taking one or two eggs every day. Yeah, it does have reasonable amount of cholesterol, but it really doesn't affect your cholesterol level unless you take thirty or forty eggs a day, which I would not recommend. <laughs> oh, wow! So there's nothing wrong with saturated fats. So saturated fats. Are the fats really in animal products? So, you know, we've been told not to eat meat and not to eat eggs because of the saturated fat. That is that is bogus. Mm. However, what you want to do is avoid processed meats. So it's again, you take the meat, you then process it into salami or some other synthetic thing because then you start adding chemicals mm. um, and you change the formulation. So you really want to get back to basics. You know, you want to think about how our, our, our Neanderthal man ate, and you want to eat a 
you know, a paleo kind of a diet, which mimics the way we were designed to eat food. Does that mean you would favor a completely carnivore diet or are you suspicious of that? <laughs> so <laughs> I've had this argument with plant-based people because yeah. they don't like what I say. And so if you actually look at the anatomical makeup of the gut, our bowel, our bowel is actually designed as carnivores rather than herbivores. Mm. So animals that are plant-based have are either foregut or hindgut fermenters. They actually have to ferment the plant-based. So they either have four stomachs, you know, like in cows, or otherwise they have very large redundant cecums where they um, ferment the fiber. The, the design or the anatomical structure of human GI tract is that of a typical carnivore. It's just an indisputable fact. You can't dispute that. So from that principle would suggest that we were designed to be carnivores. Um, now, obviously, you still want to have vegetables as part of your diet and nuts and, and, and other food groups. But um, I think that humans were designed or have evolved to eat meat. And so I do not agree with a complete plant-based diet. Most of these people who eat a plant-based diet look terribly anemic. They look unhealthy. And I, I think they aren't getting enough nutritional dense food. Mm. But I think um, a plant-based would be preferable to processed food-based. So, you know, on the spectrum of right. bad foods, Processed food is the worst. I think plant-based is, is okay, uh, and you can do it with intermittent fasting. But, you know, I, I think obviously common sense should prevail and we should eat what our ancestors ate. Mm. Um, most of our ancestors went hunting. They collected berries and they collected nuts, and that's, that's how we've evolved. It's interesting because uh, various global institutions, obviously the, the World Health Organization comes to the top of the list whenever anyone is discussing this kind of thing, um, they would want to drive us further away from meat eating, wouldn't they, towards a more a more sort of vegan style of, of eating. So in your view, that wouldn't probably be the direction to go. Yeah, I think they want us to eat insects and soy and all kinds of contrived foods. So uh, I think we should kind of get back to basics, Yes, have unprocessed food. I think some meat is fine and vegetables. And um, I think it will break people's terrible craving and addiction for carbohydrates because I think many people – a large percentage of people in the Western world are food addicts. They're starch addicts. They're addicted to starch. And if one mm. thinks of it that way, I think it becomes much easier to control that behavior. Okay, so just before we get on to the fasting, I'll just mention these real foods. So uh, you have here fish, salmon, particularly uh, all vegetables, eggs, presumably organic eggs you would recommend over other types um, yeah so yeah i'm not sure it makes an enormous ah. difference but i think the rearing practice so you know unfortunately what they feed the animal makes a big difference and so you know unfortunately i think there's a difference between grass-fed you know cows yeah. and cows that are fed high corn high fructose corn makes a difference you know it it's not been that well studied but i would I would get eggs that are, you know, the chickens have been um, properly grain fed and had received organic food. Yeah. So if you can have the choice, I would get grass fed meat and mm. more organic kind of eggs. 
That makes sense. Okay, so free-range chicken um, and uh, all nuts, you say. Uh, peanut butter. I used to avoid peanut butter. I thought it was bad for me, but uh, amazing. Yes, I presume that's without palm oil. Yes, <laughs> so you're talking about processed food. You know, many, many times nuts comes in a bag, but if you actually read the ingredients, it's, it's nuts. <laughs> there are very few additives. And the same thing with peanut butter. Peanut butter is, is actually quite good. What if, it's got, so, what if it's got palm oil in it? Palm oil is okay, I suppose. You want to have choose a peanut butter that has the least number of synthetic additives. Yeah. Um, you recommend blueberries and grapefruit, but you limit them. Uh, we talked about that a little already. Coffee, you say, helps with autophagy. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, you say uh, that uh, you can have cream with it, but just avoid sugar and avoid sweeteners. A lot of people would say, well, why can't you have the sweeteners? Yeah, so coffee actually, the caffeine is really good in, in inducing autophagy, but it also has many phytochemicals. And there's really good data that the more coffee you have, the lower your risk of dementia. Huh. There are no downsides of coffee. The only exception maybe is if you overdo it and you have, you know, coronary disease. But um, coffee is really, you know, it stimulates autophagy, has very healthy phytochemicals. Um, and has positive health effects. And, you know, if you're doing the keto-type, low-carbohydrate diet, then I would recommend, you know, I have mine with thickened cream, which has zero carbohydrate, zero. Mm -hmm. So it, um, you know, deals with the carbohydrate addiction. And I, I, I would be careful of sweeteners. The only one that seems reasonably safe is stevia, but it must be stevia without erythritol. You have to be careful because many artificial sweeteners have erythritol added. Okay. And there's a recent paper that actually erythritol increases your risk of heart disease. Okay. Stevia itself actually is quite good. It's a plant-based kind of sweetener. It has really good effects on metabolic control. But you want to make sure it's pure stevia, not stevia with erythritol. Yeah, isn't it a natural product? Isn't it a leaf? I understand that. Is it American Indians used to sort of chew it? And, yeah, uh, I think it comes from the stevia leaf and they mm. somehow grind it, whatever. Mm. So it is a natural product. So, you know, it goes back to if it's something from nature, then it's likely good. If it's something manufactured in a factory and synthetic, it's likely bad. Yeah, it's a good rule of thumb. Yeah, yeah. I mean, candy mm. bars and chocolates and potato chips you don't see them hanging off a tree so there's <laughs> no. nothing natural about them no um, going back to coffee some people say that you shouldn't have coffee if you've got high blood pressure does that really matter in a sort of average sense or is that just about a sort of spike in yeah. blood pressure and is that really an issue yeah. so you know i think if you have one or two cups i think it's fine what you don't want to do is it is a cns stimulant and so you don't want to take it within about six hours of going to sleep Ah. Because even though people say they can have coffee and sleep fine, if you actually do a sleep study, it causes sleep fragmentation. Ah. I get up and I have two or three cups of coffee in the morning and that's it. And so I think that's that's a good thing. Hmm. You want to avoid coffee before, you know, a few hours before going to sleep. Yes. Okay. Um, autophagy. Now, this is uh, like a segue to talking about fasting, because I understand that fasting is very good for that. Could you explain what autophagy is? I understand that it's some kind of rubbish collection system in the body, isn't it? Can you give us more detail? 
Yeah, so you know, the, the human body and cells are completely, I mean, the wizardry and the genius is, is truly astonishing. So mm-hmm. this process of autophagy is a universal finding in all in all cells. It was first discovered in yeast, and it's a way that the cell deals with damaged, disruptive foreign protein. So it's it's like the cell's garbage disposal system. Mm. So what it does is autophagy is a process where it collects the garbage into garbage bags, and then it, it breaks down the garbage through a garbage incinerator. And that's what the cell does. And that process is called autophagy. It's a truly astonishing process. All cells do this. And it's the way the cell gets rid of foreign proteins, damaged proteins, misfolded proteins. And it's really very important for cellular well-being. It happens during sleep in the brain. It's very important for neuronal function. And so, you know, inducing autophagy at sleep is really important. That's why you absolutely do not want to eat before you go to sleep because it breaks that autophagy cycle. And so the best way of activating autophagy, the most potent, is by fasting. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to... About 8 to 12 hours, we think, before you switch on autophagy. Uh So if you eat before you go to sleep, you're going to switch off autophagy, which is really a really bad thing. So no coffee and no eating before you go to sleep. So if you do have an evening meal, then you would have that as an early evening meal. And then you would not have supper. Not a good idea to, well, certainly have biscuits anyway, but some biscuits and a cocoa just before you go to bed. Not a good idea. Yeah, so there's no reason for snacking. There's absolutely no reason for snacking. (laughs) This idea of snacking in the evening has no, nothing good comes from that. And so you want to eat your last meal of the day as early as you can, obviously depending on your work commitment and lifestyle, but you certainly want to do it earlier rather than later. What would you say, three or four hours before bed would be best, would it? Yes, I would definitely say three to four hours before going to sleep. Hmm. Now, is autophagy also useful for the immune system and warding off cancer? I mean, are these these myths or? No, this is true. So autophagy, you know, I should have mentioned mitophagy, so mitophagy is is a similar to autophagy, but it's the way the cell processes mitochondria that are dysfunctional and not functioning optimally. Mm. And so mitophagy is very similar to autophagy. It's really important for mitochondrial function. And the data is overwhelming that intermittent fasting is the best way of controlling um, metabolic syndrome and diabetes. It prevents, limits cancer. It prevents Alzheimer's disease. It prevents Parkinson's disease. It prevents cardiovascular disease. Um, It's great for autoimmune diseases. So it's like a cure-all for everything. Um, Although you do say at some point that you have to be careful if you are already diagnosed with cancer. There may be a problem there. Is that right? So you know what? I've revised that a little bit Mm. because that's the common thinking. But in fact, you know, I've actually just come out with a guide which is for cancer care. It's the use of repurposed drugs and metabolic control for treatment of cancer and prevention of cancer. And in fact, many of the repurposed drugs actually have anti-cancer effects by stimulating autophagy. So it is a little bit more controversial, but actually it appears that autophagy is actually seems to be okay if you have cancer because it has 
lots of other beneficial effects. And it seems that many, that autophagy actually promotes cancer cell death. So there is only one real, con- well, a few contraindications to intermittent fasting. Mm. The first one is type 1 diabetic. So if you can't make insulin, it's not a good idea. It doesn't mean you should take a high-carbohydrate meal. That's also complete false and, and fallacy. But I think you should be careful if you're a type 1 diabetic. The second is pregnancy is a no-no. In growing children is a no-no. Breastfeeding is a no-no. And I think if you have severe eating disorders, it may not be the best approach. And if you're malnourished. Mm. And so one should make the distinction between starvation and time-restricted feeding because they're completely different. Starvation is where you basically deny the body of food. And what happens is the body compensates by decreasing basal metabolic rate and decreasing growth hormone. Intermittent fasting has periods of fasting, but broken up by nutrient-dense food. And so paradoxically, your basal metabolic rate stays the same or goes up, but growth hormone goes up. So it has the opposite metabolic effect of starvation. And so while people spend thousands of dollars on growth hormone, which really has a short half-life, the most effective way to increase your growth hormone is time-restricted feeding. Ah, so okay. So the, the yeah. only people that shouldn't really do it is if you're a type 1 diabetic, you have to be really careful um, and in pregnancy. Right, okay. So starving is not fasting, but you, you do it longer. It's actually chemically different. It's biochemically different in the body, different processes. Yeah, absolutely. So right. starvation is where you, you know, you're basically not taking in any food. Mm. But so in a way, intermittent fasting is no food for a number of hours and then eating. So it's punctuated with high nutrient content food, mm. whereas starving is just depriving the body of nutrients. The one yeah. thing I should mention is intermittent fasting or time restricted feeding can be somewhat bothersome in menstruating women or women of childbearing age. And so they should approach it more cautiously because if they do it too aggressively, um, particularly if they don't do it slowly, it actually can interfere with the menstrual cycle. So in women who are in the reproductive years, we recommend first, the first step is to switch over to real food from processed food. That must be the first step. The next step is to miss one meal a day and breakfast is the best and then to gradually increase that window as they tolerate it. Some women actually um, have menstrual irregularity and so what we then recommend is to do a, a you know ketotic type, a ketogenic diet, intermittent fasting in the first two to three weeks of the cycle, but in the last week to 14 days to um, not do intermittent fasting in their cycle. So to time the intermittent cycle with the menstrual cycle. You actually have quite a big section in this guide, which is called Women and Fasting. It's a number of pages, so I would um, direct listeners to that. Of course, the links will be in the show notes for that. Um, Okay, uh, so let's talk more about different approaches to fasting. Some of the methods. You recommend a book by Jason Fung, 
which has got a lot of information about the different ways you might be able to do this. It's very flexible, isn't it? So it's a simple thing to do. It's free. It's powerful, as you say. So we can choose to do it in different ways. Um, how did you start doing it? Yeah. So, I mean, I do recommend Jason Fung's book because I think you can adapt intermittent fasting to any lifestyle yeah. so that it's, it's adaptable and flexible. I think the, the the simplest, the most convenient, and probably the most powerful is time-restricted feeding, hmm. where you have a, a window during the day when you eat, and then you don't eat the rest of the time. And you start off by you know eating with a window of you know maybe 12 hours, and then reduce it to eight hours, and then six hours, and then four hours. And currently, I do it for an hour. So I eat what? for a window of about an hour a day, and then the other 23 hours i just simply don't eat i take in fluids but i don't eat so that's just one meal a day then isn't it yes so i do, eat do, you, do you get enough you get enough food from that do you oh absolutely there's no question of doubt this hmm. this idea you need three meals a day or four meals a day is completely nonsense as long as you have nutrient dense food and take in enough nutrients one meal a day is perfectly fine so how does that connect with the guide we get about how many calories typically a woman should eat and typically a man should eat, et cetera? Um, because, I mean, I'm gradually trying to uh, – well, I have been weaning myself off the three meals a day. And I've got now to the state where I'm having one meal a day within a sort of two or three hour window. Um, and I've lost uh, – what have I lost now? Uh, in four weeks, I've lost four kilograms. So I'm losing about a kilogram a week. And I am wondering to myself, well, if I go on with this indefinitely – Will I just wither away? So, you know. Yeah. So that is a good question. So I think it depends upon your goals. So when you're trying to lose weight, mm. you you need to be more restrictive. Once you actually get to where I've got, where you know I've had the weight loss that I, I desired, my diabetes is gone. I don't need to be that strict, and I can, you know, eat between a you know a two to four hour window if I want to. Yeah. But you know, if you eat, if you um taking enough calories during your one one hour of eating, then you're taking in an, enough calories. You know, mm. we, we only we take in excess calories, which we store as fat. And so you can maintain your, your weight on 2,000 calories a day, obviously depending on your size. And you certainly can get enough mm. calories in a single meal. Yeah, so you just need to experiment with yourself over time, I presume, and see, well, oh, I'm putting weight on, or no, I'm stabilizing, and, and, and just do it yourself. So um, I think that the, the nice thing about it is it's very flexible, and it can be individualized according to people's lifestyle and life circumstances and physiology and age. Hmm. Um, so it's very flexible. The other way is people do alternate day fasts, so they eat one day, and then they fast the next day, that, that's one option. The other is the 5-2 thing where mm. basically two or three days a week you have like four to 500 calories and then the rest of the days you eat normally. Oh, yes. It's a little bit more complicated. I think that the time-restricted feeding by e eating a uh, within a window is, is good. Mm. The other thing that you can do is you can mix it up. So you can do a two- or three-day fast or a two-day fast while you're doing this. So there is some benefit, particularly if you want to lose weight and kickstart your weight loss, is to do a two- to three-day fast, which actually sounds horrific. Mm. But once you've actually mastered the, your cravings and your addiction, because it is an addiction, it's actually not that difficult. 
And if you realize that we eat all the time because we're addicted, once you deal with that addiction as if it was, you know, a, a illicit substance or alcohol, you, you can go without alcohol uh, and substances and food for, for some time. So it is not true then that if you are a, a, a normal person, as it were, you're not contraindicated in any way. You can go quite safely two to three days fasting. Oh, absolutely. But still drinking water, of course. Yeah, I think the record in an in obese man, so obviously he had lots of fat stores, is he didn't eat for 200 days, 230 days or something. I think it's the world record. And he obviously survived and didn't die, but he had adequate fat stores. Yeah. Um, I don't like prolonged fasting because eventually you're going to go from the intermittent fasting model to the starvation model. So eventually your basal metabolic rate will go down and you're going to start breaking down protein and muscle mass, which you don't want to do. So I think a two to three day fast in between intermittent fasting is okay. I think the key obviously is to eliminate processed food from your diet. Yeah. Yeah. I just stress that we're not actually advocating for a 200-day fast here. That was just an example, uh, just to make that clear. Um, now, isn't the 5-2 style of uh, calorie restriction less good for autophagy? I mean, I, I don't know, but I just wonder if that's the case. Yeah, it's one way of doing things. So, you know, it's better than eating every day all the time. Yeah. My, my preferred method would be time-restricted feeding every day, but there are, you know, some people find it difficult. So, you know, alternate day feeding is is one, or, or this 5-2 protocol is another. Um, I'm not sure there's really good data comparing them, um, but my bias is the, you know, time-restricted feeding is probably the most effective. Mm. What do you do if you feel hungry? Your tummy starts to rumble. Uh, okay, you yes, can drink water, but is that it? So you should only eat when you're hungry. And when you're not hungry, you shouldn't eat. And so the remarkable thing is once you've broken your addiction, you are not hungry. Hmm. It's a truly astonishing physiological observation that you can eat one meal a day and you're not hungry. Yes. And you're not hungry because you've broken your addiction. And they are physiological mechanisms behind this it does change your brain chemistry and your brain dopamine and norepinephrine and serotonin and so that you actually are not hungry it's, it's a remarkable thing that you can go for 20 hours 22 hours with not eating and not getting hungry i can testify to that it's absolutely true um, one thing i have noticed is when i then eat tends to be in the early evening sometimes i get a bit of a bloated stomach you know after that fast and so what i will do is about 20 minutes before i'll eat a handful of nuts or something and that seems to ease that situation is that is that a common finding or is that just me yeah so i think you know that's why you need to adapt it so yeah. you know once you've reached your goal you can spread out the window so you can start off with uh, you know that's a really good way to start a meal you can have uh, an egg um, is really good nutritional value and then have whatever else you're going to eat. And so um, rather than having one massive meal, you can spread it out over an, an hour or two. Mm -hmm. That's probably the optimal way. Uh, one thing that's just come to my mind is I, I have occasionally tried a 24-hour fast and I've, I've not enjoyed the the practice however i'll try again uh, but what i did notice as many years ago um, was that my heart was beating 
very fast when I woke up the next morning. Um, again, is that something just peculiar to me or do a lot of people experience that? Yeah, so I think that the 24-hour fast is a little bit more difficult and I would not recommend it until you've been kind of adapted yes. to this technique yes because you want this to be helpful not detrimental so um yes so i, I would do it slowly and you know particularly mm. if you're a woman who's menstruating you certainly wouldn't want to do that mm. and i think without question the first step is the transition from processed food to real food yes that must be the first step and then once you've mastered that then one can start eating within a, a particular time window yeah, I did not experiment with myself in a kind of graduated way when I did that before. I jumped in at the deep end and had these effects. So yes, um, it wouldn't be the same now. I would be much more careful about it. And I recommend everybody else to be very careful about it. And of course, to consult your doctor. Um, can we just say a few things before we end about these healthy eating habits? You've mentioned a few of them, um, but there are quite a lot, which some of them can seem very obvious, but some of them, you know, they pass you by because they're too obvious, if you see what I mean. So you, one of the things you say is only eat at the table. <laughs> yeah. Well, of course, but actually, no, a lot of eating happens away from the table, doesn't it? It's incredible how much. Yeah. So I think it's about, you know, developing healthy eating habits. It's not only what you eat and how you eat, it's where you eat. So a lot of people mm. eat in the car, they, they eat watching TV, they eat at a yeah. football game. Mm. Those are really all bad eating habits. And obviously to eat in the bedroom. So you want to eat at the dining table and that should be your ritual. That's the only place you eat. You sit down and eat. And so mm. you should enjoy the meal. It should become a ritual. You should savor the meal. It's a it's it's a mindfulness thing. You you should eat at the table. You should enjoy the food. You should do it slowly. You shouldn't gulp it down. And you should savor the tastes. And it should be a pleasant eating experience. Mm. But it's really important. It should be at the dining room table or the kitchen table. Um, you know, eating in the car is a really bad habit, mm. and eating in front of the TV is a really bad habit. Yes, and you mentioned the lecture hall as well when you were speaking to Dr. Bean. I was thinking, do you, when you were doing your medical lectures, did you have students chewing in front of you? Yeah, so I think you know, students will eat wherever they can, whenever they can, or whatever time they can. And so, again, that's really a bad habit. Yeah. So those are eating habits which you really want to break. Yes, yes. Um, sleep is hugely important, you say. We're often told about that. What, what would you say is the optimal amount of sleep for a you know, normal adult person? Yeah, so that's a good question because there are some people who think that they can get away with three or four hours of sleep. Mm. The research has shown that that's absolutely false. Mm. You need at least six to seven hours of restorative sleep for adequate brain function. So it's really important. And there are people who claim that as you get older, you need less sleep. No, right. sleeping is really important for obviously cognitive function, for psychiatric function, but almost, almost as important to prevent degenerative brain disease, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, wow. dementia. Mm. So it's really important that we get adequate sleep. It's the it's the time that the brain recovers and you know develops all these neuronal shoots and sprouts and 
synapses it's during sleep mm. so sleep is, is 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 critically important and as you said earlier that's when a lot of autophagy happens during sleep so if you're not having enough hours um, it's, it's no good presumably having three or four hours and then catching up at the weekend that, that's no, well, no no you don't want it it doesn't work that way you can't put sleep in the bank no it's called sleep hygiene you want to have particularly good you know the same way we talked about eating you want to eat at the table and have a particular pattern in terms of sleep hygiene. You want the same thing, no TV in the room, mm. no radio in the room, no bright lights in the room. It should be for sleeping. You want to have good habits of sleep hygiene mm. and you want to have a routine. You know, you can break it now and then, but you want to have a routine which consolidates your circadian rhythm. It must be very hard for people who are on shift work and the like, uh, very, very difficult. Um, yeah, so actually you raise an important issue that I didn't know. Mm. So shift work is actually classified by the EPA as a type 2 carcinogen, is it really? as a type 2 carcinogen, because oh. the data shows that women who do shift work, particularly airline stewards and nurses, have a higher risk of breast cancer. Oh, I see. That's, that's a well-known epidemiological factor, and it's related to disturbance of the circadian rhythm and melatonin release. Yeah. So, unfortunately, nothing good comes from night shift working. No, and another another issue with our neoliberal gig economy. Um, okay, uh, you also mentioned antibiotics. Well, obviously, we still need antibiotics for some things, but um, there are lots of unnecessary ones, aren't there? It's overprescribed. Yeah, so you only need to take an antibiotic when you have a bacterial infection. Yeah. So, you know, if you have pneumonia you want to take an antibody. But most times people develop upper respiratory tract infection, which 95% of the time is, is a virus, either influenza right. or a cold virus. And I can tell you that most patients will leave the doctor's office with a script for an antibiotic. That is probably the worst possible thing you can do. Uh, has a terrible effect on your bowel flora and has obviously no benefit. So you should only take an antibiotic when you need it. It's pretty obvious. Is, is that because the, the doctors do that to placate the patient, making the, the patient think they've got something? You know? Yeah, I think they're pressurized by the patient because you, you the doctor has yeah. to have a conversation with the patient to explain to them why they don't need an antibiotic. And it's easier for them to write a script for an antibiotic than actually sit down and spend 10 minutes yeah. explaining this to the patient. So I think patients demand it. Yeah. Physicians don't have the time to practice good medicine. Yeah, And obviously, Big Pharma likes it. So it would, although it appears to be a win-win situation, is actually a lose-lose situation. Yeah. Uh, connected to that is the issue of your microbiome, which you do mention again in the guide, um, which of course is very important to maintain. But antibiotics can be detrimental to that, can't they? Yeah. So in fact, we're more bacterial than we are human. We have more bacteria and bacterial DNA in our gut than we have human cells. So we have to yeah. respect our flora because mm. our flora has enormous impact on the rest of the body in terms of the immune system, in terms of the gut-brain connection, the gut-heart connection. So you need to be respectful of your bacteria and you need to think about them and you need to give them good food and not bad food because the same way is what we feed ourselves makes a difference to our nutrition. What we feed our flora 
makes a difference to our flora. So yeah. we need to feed them a good diet and be, be kind to them. Yes, I was having a conversation a few years back with uh, Dr. Stephanie Seneff, who was saying, you know, there's a lot of glyphosate that appears in food products, uh, which although, you know, the manufacturers will say, well, we're not plants, so it's not a problem, but we have plant-based microbiome constituents and those can be affected. So we want diverse foods, but not with herbicides. Um, Fermented foods are good, is that right? Yeah, so fermented foods are good because of the useful, helpful bacteria they have. So in terms of maintaining the flora, you know, you need to have both soluble and insoluble fiber, which obviously you get from um, vegetables and fruit to some degree, but mainly vegetables, green leafy vegetables, cruciferous vegetables are really good. And then um, obviously um, avoiding chemicals which are harmful to the flora. Yes. Two last questions. How important is exercising? And in connection with that, what's the relationship between exercising and fasting? Do they go together or should you do them separately? Yes. So it's a good question. So they're both really beneficial and you get more bang for your buck when you do both together. And certainly exercise is really important. And the data shows you want to do both aerobic as well as resistance training resistance training is really important for maintaining lean body mass and as we age we tend to lose lean body mass so that's why resistance training is really important you know i think doing a marathon the body was not designed for that i think that's harmful it causes a profound stress response but you know 20 to 30 minutes of exercise a day and you can combine aerobic or anaerobic or you can alternate is really good and um there's no question that it has enormous health benefits. So there is some debate of whether you exercise before you eat or after you eat. I'm not sure that the jury is completely in yet. Okay. If you exercise after you eat, uh, it does tend to have an effect on flattening your glucose curve. Hmm. Um, okay. The idea that you need to eat before you eat because of the effect of starving on growth hormone is not true because growth hormones half-life natural growth hormone is many hours so that the growth hormone will still be hanging about if you exercise after a meal so i'm not sure that it actually makes an enormous difference you don't obviously you don't want to do vigorous exercise if you haven't had adequate carbohydrates or adequate food intake because you obviously depleted your liver of glycogen you've depleted your muscles of glycogen so if you do very strenuous exercise after having not eaten for a while you can become hypoglycemic and you can develop muscle issues so you know if you do such a thing then maybe you could have a healthy shake so you don't want to avoid milkshakes with high carbs and synthetic things but there are healthy shakes that have you know that are formulated to be a healthy food supplement and one could probably have that before you exercise is it a myth that you should not swim after a meal leave it for an hour or so that's what i was brought up with so actually that's a really good question my mother actually bless her little heart was a swim instructor Ah. and so i think you want to wait about 20 minutes the only reason is that if you have a full stomach and you throw up you you can (laughs) you, you you can 
you know, suffocate <laughs> right. while you're vomiting yeah. and swimming. Oh, gosh. But I think it's more of an old wives' tale than, than anything else because most people aren't throwing up all the time. No. I think it's the it's the concern that if you exercise or you particularly swim that that you can throw up and then choke and suffocate. Oh, okay. I rather thought it was more an indigestion thing, but, uh, well. <laughs> um, so swimming is a good exercise. Presumably that's one of those that you would recommend, say, for the half an hour exercise a day or, or jogging or something like that. Yeah, so, yeah, swimming's really good because it's non-weight-bearing, it's aerobic. Mm. Uh, mm. Well, only one thing is it's not weight-bearing, so you need to combine it so it's an aerobic exercise. You need to combine it with some resistance training. But, yeah. you know, walking, running, cycling is really good. And then some weight training. And it doesn't mean weight training that you have to bench press, you know, 300 pounds. You know, you can use your own body weight for weight resistance training. But it's really important to maintain muscle mass. So, you know, pull-ups, push-ups, um, light weights are really good. Mm, excellent. And uh, presumably it's the same sort of advice again, that 30 minutes a day is better than trying to do three and a half hours all in one go at the weekend. So. Uh, and so I, I, I think this idea of ultra marathons and marathons is really anti-physiologic. And so okay. I think 20 to 30 minutes a day, if you can, or three or four times a week is preferable. Mm. Um, you don't want to be obsessed and you want to mix, mix it up. Mm. And it's good for the mind. I think it should be part of a mm. mindful approach to relaxation and mind control and stress release. Yes, yes. Well, I find walking a good time to think. Uh, maybe I'm getting lots of oxygen into my lungs and it, it helps me. I don't know. Uh, it seems to be a good time, apart from the shower, which is a traditionally another good place to think. Um, the last question is uh, about sun exposure. We're often told that that is dangerous because of skin cancer. We obviously now know that there's a, a lot of benefit from vitamin D production, but there's more to it than that, isn't there? Isn't it helpful in other ways? Yeah, so I was going to say one of the best things you can do, particularly if you're not near the North Pole, is to go for a walk in the sunshine at about midday because then you get the benefits of exercise, you get the benefits of sunshine. Mm. And so sunshine is both the ultraviolet B, which makes vitamin D, but it's also the infrared, which energizes your cells and your mitochondria. And so there, there are people who are sun averse, and a really good study in a peer-reviewed journal showed that people who avoid the sun are at a twice the risk of dying and developing cardiac disease than people who have sun exposure. So um, sun is really beneficial. That's the way we were designed to well, the sun. Yes. And in fact, yeah. in the 1918 flu epidemic, believe it or not, the most effective treatment for influenza pneumonia was sunshine. They would take patients wow. from the hospital beds, put them outdoors in the sunshine. And uh, in a really interesting paper, it showed that it reduced the mortality from about 40% to about 12%. Wow. So sunshine yeah. is really very important. And if you want to combine it with walking in the sun I, or cycling in the sun, I, I think you, uh, you've hit the nail on the head. And what about sun grieve? I mean, obviously, if you're you know, sunbathing for four or five hours, maybe there's a case for that. But do we need to, to slap ourselves with sun cream when we go out for half an hour walk? 
That defeats the entire purpose <laughs> of using a sunscreen because it may be on your face or if you have a bald head like me, you, you don't want to burn on your on your scalp or your face. But you don't want I mean to put it on the rest of your body defeats the entire point of the exercise. You want the UVB to make vitamin D, you want mm. the infrared ray. So putting on skin barriers uh, doesn't make any sense. Yeah, you just want to avoid burning. Yes. <laughs> you only do it up to you, that point. Yes, you know, yeah. so you don't want to burn. So that's why mm. you, much like exercise, you want to do time-restricted sun exposure. Yes. You, you want to be in the sun, but if you actually, once you start going red, then you know that's it. You don't want to burn. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, that's fabulous. Uh, thank you ever so much, Dr. Marek. I don't know whether there is anything else that you want to add, but there's so much more, of course, in this document. So I do recommend people go and look at it. Uh, lots of documents and videos, of course, on your website as well to do with this. This is the FLCCC website. Uh, is, is there anything key that you think we've missed out in this conversation that uh, really should be stressed? I think we've covered most bases. I think yeah. most of what we spoke about is pretty much common sense and getting back to basics. You know, this is not yes. rocket science. This is just mm. living the life that we were designed, you know, the way we were designed to be. Mm. And, you know, I think people can empower themselves to be much healthier. And it's just about common sense and getting back to basics. Yeah, and there is a great feeling, isn't there, that, that you do feel like you're taking your health in your own hands and you're not just reliant upon whatever the doctor happens to say in the five-minute appointment that you have. But you, you do feel like, well, I can actually make a difference here and I can experiment with myself to an extent. Uh, that, that's very empowering. Yeah. So I think people need to educate themselves. Uh, I think you need to be somewhat skeptical about what mainstream medicine is telling you because they have conflicts of interest and you can get high quality information out there obviously there's a lot of mm. misinformation but you know you can mm. you can filter out what what is true and what isn't true absolutely critical thinking as uh, so many people say today but of course it is true real critical thinking is yes, very important take the advice of experts but of course with a pinch of salt because we have to think for ourselves too yeah much like common sense which is distinctly uncommon <laughs> critical thinking doesn't seem to be that common either but it's already important <laughs> to develop the skill to be able to analyze much like we having a discussion now people should discuss this with their their spouses, their children, their relatives. And mm -hmm. that's what distinguishes us from monkeys is we can actually engage in a yeah. meaningful dialogue. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So this is the, you know, the title again, the Eat Well Guide to Intermittent Fasting, Time-Restricted Eating and Healthy Habits. And you have another one that goes sort of hand in hand with it, which is the Eye Care Guide. Could just briefly tell us what that's about. Yeah, we decided to break them up into little pieces so that be easier to understand. So we have we have the eat well to intermittent fasting. We have the diabetes protocol, which specifically designed for people with type two diabetes and metabolic syndrome. Then we have eye care, which is the treatment of acute COVID. We have uh -huh. the influenza RSV protocol. We have the I prevent what you can do to prevent COVID and influenza. And coming within a few weeks, we'll have the cancer care guide. Um, and then after that, we're going to have the depression guide, how to wow. treat depression Excellent. without traditional pharmaceutical products. So um, we're touching all bases. And yes. basically, we figured out that most of medicine is not telling you the truth and people can 
empower themselves with more down-to-earth basic interventions. And your eyes were open to this during the COVID period, obviously. Are you going to change your name? I mean, you are still COVID19criticalcare.com. What are you going to do about that? Yeah, so we've thought about that. It's a really good question. So we FLCCC. Yeah. That has become sort of like a trademark. Hmm. And so, you know, the FLCCC could stand for all kinds of things. So we're going to be the FLCCC, not so much the COVID Critical Care 19 Alliance. So, I mean, it's much like the Coca-Cola trademark or the Olympic trademark. It's established our identity. Yes. So, you know, the, the FLCCC could stand for all kinds of things. How about cool collaborative care? How about that one? Yeah, there's so many good things. Yeah, you, the CCC <laughs> opens us up to cool collaborative care. There you go. Yes, that's right. CCC. <laughs> all right, so all this information free of charge to download. Lots of detail there, as I say, uh, videos, etc. at the website, which I'll put links to the show notes, etc. Um, you are off, I understand, in a day or two to the UK to... Bath, not in the Bath, but the city of Bath, to um, the Better Way Conference. What's that about? Yeah, so I will be going to Bath, and hopefully I may have a bath there. So the World <laughs> yes. Council for Health has the Better Way Conference. Um, basically, they're going to be looking at a whole number of topics related to healthcare and how health, the, the current paradigm has failed, mm. and how there are alternative narratives that you know, much like we've spoken about today. Mm. So we'll be talking about how pharma has captured medicine. We'll be talking about COVID, about vaccine injury, um, many health-related issues. Yeah. So it, it should be a good conference. Yes. Do you know if this will be available for people to watch through video or anything like that? Yeah, I, I'm sure that they will be. Yes, I'm absolutely certain that the, the sessions will be pre-recorded and available on their website. So if you go to the World Council for Health website, you'll find all the information you need. Excellent. Well, I wish you the best for that and for all the work that you're doing with that. And I, let me take the opportunity uh, again to thank you, Dr. Marek, for your work, especially you know what you did during um, the uh, the crazy time, the evil COVID period, let me say, evil period um, at the FLCCC Alliance with your colleagues. And thanks for the you know the many lives that you saved. And I want to say also for the, the personal sacrifice that you made to stand for the truth and integrity. And uh, I know that you know many listeners, countless people all over the world, will be echoing that in their thoughts today. So thank you very much indeed for joining us, Dr. Marek. It's, it's been great. It's been great. Thank you. Sure. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having this conversation. And clearly COVID opened our eyes to um, yes. what was there before we didn't see it. And so if there is a silver lining to all of this is that I think it's given us an opportunity to change and open our eyes. Yes. Wonderful. Thank you ever so much, Dr. Marek. Enjoyed it very much. And I think people will benefit from it. Thank you. Sure. Thanks. Have a good day, my friend. Once again, my thanks to Dr. Marek for joining us again on the podcast. Great to speak with him again. I enjoyed that very much, and I hope you also enjoyed the conversation. Um, one or two things, well, actually a handful of things, I thought, after the interview, which might be good to flag up here. First, I think we didn't clarify well enough that Dr. Marek was talking specifically about type 2 diabetes. He was not talking about type 1 diabetes, which is a different matter and um, I, th I think not relevant really to uh, the Eat Well Guide and what we're talking about here today. So he's talking about type 2 diabetes. 
Um, secondly, as you heard, uh, Dr. Marek has some unconventional views as regards diet, etc., which is you know partly what makes him so interesting to listen to. But if you have any questions about what he said today on this podcast, um, and I have some questions myself, you know, uh, for example, I'm, I'm not, I'm going to tell you now, I'm not fully convinced about his view on fruit. I can't quite believe that it, it has negligible nutritional value. I agree that maybe... I shouldn't pick out on it. That might not be a good idea. Uh, but I still suspect that it has some value. And um, and fasting itself, I'm interested in it. I think it's helping me, certainly helping me to lose some weight. Um, and maybe it's helping me in other ways too. But I do wonder if Dr. Marek, in his enthusiasm, is perhaps slightly overestimating its effectiveness against quite so many illnesses. Um, I'm not saying he's wrong, and I hope he's right. All I'm saying is I'm just questioning that. Anyway, as I say, if you have any questions about what he has said here today, then please do ask him. Don't ask me for detailed answers on nutritional matters. You know, I'm not an expert in that. Um, he's the doc, not me. I'm just a learner here. So uh, the contact information can be found very easily at covid19criticalcare.com. That's the FLCCC Alliance website. That's covid19criticalcare.com. That'll be in the show notes anyway. Uh, where, of course, you will find the Eat Well guide that we talked about under the Treatment Protocols tab. Thirdly, this conversation was recorded last week, and I didn't get around to editing it until this week because we've just had the school's half term here, which always gets in the way of podcasting matters. So uh, the Better Way conference that Dr. Marek was just about to fly off to in the city of Bath, well, that's already happened. Um, and yes, I've, I've got an answer to my question. Uh, there are videos of that event, and they are accessible through... Uh, betterwayconference.org betterwayconference.org so please visit there if you're interested to look at any of those fourth um, at the risk of being boring sorry about this please do not forget that none of what was discussed here today was personal advice it was all for informational purposes only we're all different all different ages different conditions different medications etc and it might just be the case that what was talked about here today is not right for you so please do check with your doctor first before making any changes to your diet etc number five next time i should be talking with jacob hornberger who is founder and president of the future of freedom foundation in the united states for an interview on the historical and political circumstances in the united states leading up to the assassination of jfk and uh, specifically on the growth of the u.s national security state and its significance for understanding that assassination. And I'm hoping that that will be the first of a number of TMR podcasts of various types uh, during the remainder of 2023 relating to JFK's assassination. Lastly, as always, notes for this program can be found at The Mind Renewed, themindrenewed.com, podcast music by the brilliant Anthony Rajakoff, attribution non-commercial share alike 4.0 international. You have been listening to me, Julian Charles, and my guest, Dr. Paul Marrick, and I very much look forward to speaking to you again in the near future.